Hello and welcome to Dairy Dialogue podcast number 85, and happy June. One of these weeks I'm probably going to lose track and use the same number. Not that all of the weeks feel the same, I think that that's one of the great things about news is that it does change every day, even though the main theme for the past four months has pretty much been the same. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I did struggle to find anything interesting about the number 85. There are lots of things associated with it, of course, like roads and bus numbers, astronomy. But there were two that stood out for me. One was E85 fuel, which stands for 85% ethanol, and the other was a bit of a trip down memory lane at the TI-85 calculator. I didn't have one, as I'd left my education days behind by the time it came out in 1992. But I do admit a little bit of jealousy at seeing them and wondering why we had such primitive calculators when I was in school. And now, of course, we have smartphones, and we don't need to use our brains for memory at all anymore. That's my excuse anyway. It's been another busy week in dairy, as it always seems to be, and we'll have the news from the past seven days for you in a little while. I've been busy doing more interviews for next week's podcast and still more lined up for the following week. A few time zone challenges, but it's always great to talk to people around the world. I think with lockdowns everywhere, we definitely have a lot more in common with people in different countries than we think. So, who is on this week's show? Well, we have three interviews, one of which has two guests. We talk to Diraj Talreja president of AAK Kamani, and Varun Deshpande, managing director at the Good Food Institute India, Dr. Stephanie Venn Watson, CEO and co-founder of Serafina Therapeutics, and Graham Honeman, director at Christine's Food Hygiene. Of course, we also have the weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from INTL FC Stone. Last week, I'd recorded the entire podcast early and put Liam's name in, which I never do. And of course, at the last minute, it turned out to be Charlie Highland doing the piece. That'll teach me to try and be efficient. So I think the moral of that story is leave everything to the last minute, or always put off today what you might not have to do tomorrow something like that. And so after those words of wisdom in how to avoid things, let's get to this week's news. Univar Solutions has announced it will be distributing Valio's lactose-free milk powders. Mitsubishi has produced a new cobot, which obviously doesn't need to social distance, but probably isn't very good at conversation about what was on TV last night. Eagle has launched some new x-ray solutions. The WHO and UNICEF say governments need to tighten the breast milk substitute marketing code during the coronavirus pandemic. Nutritia is supporting research on recovery from hospitalization with coronavirus, and we had a couple of stories from Arla this week. It's updating its farm management and quality program, and Arla Foods Ingredients is happy that China is now allowing whey permeate imports. Waitrose is helping struggling British cheesemakers with a new offering in its stores. We had an article on World Milk Day, and in the US, the NMPF is urging farmers and producers to take advantage of the new coronavirus assistance program. Ketone has signed a distribution deal with Baileys, and not a million miles away from home in Scotland, Graham's has submitted bioenergy plans for its cheese plant in Cowdenbeath, whose football team, strangely, is known as the Blue Brazil, and no one's quite sure why. You can read all of these and many more at dairyreporter.com, although there isn't an article on soccer team nicknames. 
So, let's get moving with this week's guests. First up is some timely information about coronavirus and hygiene. No one really knows what's going to happen when we finally start to emerge from the lockdown to some kind of normality, but one thing is for sure, hygiene and food safety are both going to be front and centre. So, what better way to take a look at this than with Graham Honeyman, director of the UK company Christine's Food Hygiene. As we start to come out of the lockdown in various ways in different places, as far as your business is concerned, what do you think we're likely to see in terms of changes with sanitization and disinfection, those kinds of things? Well, certainly for us, you know, and the food industry has always been to the highest possible standard anyway. And what we found is that, you know, it's lots of other areas that we've been helping out with national health service, with um, hotels, etc. because the dairy industry has, has always led the way. You know, it's an industry where we've got false hygiene and false entry that you can't get into most factories without standing at a turnstile, washing your hands, presenting your hands in, changing into safety equipment and then being allowed into the factory. So I don't think there will be lots of change that's actually happened uh, in the food industry or in the dairy industry than it was previously, apart from start looking at touch points where people are actually touching things where potentially that they could have the virus on their hands. And it will be things like the canteens, the locker rooms, the computer keypads, any touch pads for security. And then also things like forklift trucks and the drivers when they get in the road tankers for disinfecting those from driver to driver for the steering wheel, the the handles for getting in the vehicle. So those type of changes will be different for the food industry and the dairy industry definitely than it was previously, although the dairy industry standards are, are second to none. We've heard about companies looking to install thermal imaging cameras so that they can check staff temperatures and a lot of different aspects to this pandemic when we come out of the other side. Do you think that there's going to be major changes in other companies and also in things like retail? It will definitely. You know, we work with retail. One of our biggest customers has got 2,000 shops. Every one of those shops, before they opened, we had to decontaminate those to make sure they were safe and issue certificates to make sure they'd cleaned them with the right products. We've also started working for people like bus companies. And, uh, you know, the bus companies before, they, you know, had thousands of buses sitting there for eight weeks just in yards with hot temperatures, and they've just been growing bacteria. So all of those type of things are going to have to be clean. The airlines, you know, if you ever got on a, an economy flight, they turn them around in 30 minutes to 40 minutes. Now, every one of those aircraft will have to be decontaminated and the touch points all cleaned with a, a virus side to make sure that the person sitting in the seat next to you didn't have coronavirus and you're not going to catch it through flying on the plane. So for some industries, it will be a real massive change, but a change that is required. As I said, hand hygiene will never go back to where it was. Everyone has become more reliant on washing their hands correctly and using gels, and that will continue. And I think it will continue stronger over the next few weeks as restaurants start to open, as shops start to open, there'll be more and more requirements for gels. So, you know, there will be more demand and prices once again going back up again. And as well as the public going into restaurants and buying products, that all has to be safe. But then the producers and companies have to make sure that their employees are safe too. 
Absolutely. As I said, from staggered arrival for, you know, additional parking spaces, reducing congestion, you know, one-way systems. As directors of businesses, we are responsible for the safety of our employees and their well-being as, as number one. And, you know, we, we found that some of the big dairy companies that have got big offices, you know, around the UK are coming to us now and saying, look, how do we get our guys back to work safely within the office? You know, what do we need to do? Do we need to provide hand washing stations? Do they need to provide their own disinfectant gel for themselves? You know, how can they clean the keypads? You know, what, what are they doing to do that? So, uh, you know, we've been working hard with lots of companies so they can understand how to get back to work safely, how to look after their employees, but the key thing for me is it's simple, it's common sense, but equally you have to follow the government guidelines which are clear or justify why you use using alternatives that you believe are better. You kind of touched on it before when you talked about the fact that everybody's going to need all of these new procedures and new methods of doing things. And it's obviously going to increase costs for a lot of companies in probably more staff to do that kind of work, but also in terms of the products that they're going to have to buy. Yeah, for us, the products itself is that we are very fortunate as a business being Christine's that we are the second biggest manufacturer in the world of peracetic acid. So peracetic acid, H2O2, hydrogen peroxide, very, very effective against viruses and bacteria. We also have quats, which we're now testing to find out if they are against viruses and alcohols. So we don't think that there will be, certainly for the dairy industry, large on costs for it you know there might be some and we've actually spent the last eight weeks developing some more cost-effective viricidal cleaners and disinfectants for the touch surface for cleaning so i can't see being lots and lots of on cost for the dairy industry itself other areas like airlines shops they will just have to, supermarkets you know it will be ongoing that they have people standing at the you know, the troll is making sure they're disinfected. So, you know, they've got a big cost at the moment. Um, and also the shops, most of them are asking most customers to disinfect when they come into their, their shop. If they've got thousands of customers t- today, you know, they'll be using literally tens to hundreds of, you know, litres of alcohol gel per month, which is an enormous on cost to them. So yeah. I think it's hand hygiene and, you know, the areas outside of normal manufacturing, the the touch point cleaning, I call it. And as I said, we have developed this product called BactiCleanse, which is just a really cost-effective alternative to the expensive alcohols and peracetic acid for cleaning those type of surfaces and safer and more more effective. So as as well as the other stuff that you do, you're also developing new products to tackle this? We have, yes. As I said, we've developed this BactiCleanse in the last few weeks and we've just had that tested against viricidal. So that's out on the market at the moment. And that was really just to get a more cost-effective alternative for our customers. But as I said, the disinfection in in a dairy company won't change. You know, they've got CIPs, um, which will still be using peracetic acid extremely effective and then they're still using you know the chlorines and the rest of their products and disinfectants so i guess that as well as the products that you produce you're also in a position to be able to help companies that are in a panic as to what to do with regards to procedures yeah what we've really done over the because lockdown has been difficult for all of our customers so what we've been doing is we've been doing webinars we've run two webinars with industry experts to talk about 
the issues to do daily and weekly briefings for our customers. We've also learned an awful lot more about e-learning. So we've got an enhanced e-learning package so we can do training for our customers on an e-learning and also a remote training. So we've actually do, doing our standard face-to-face -face training courses, whether they're for BRC or HACCP or hygiene or effective cleaning, but we're doing it remotely as well. We've also done back-to-work and back-to-site uh, risk assessments for, for customers so they can understand what the risks are, what they should be looking for, and more importantly, what to do. Um, and as I said, we have developed a new disinfectant over the last few weeks, which is more cost-effective. And we've also been working with other companies for equipment. So we've now found a company that has got a really nice, um, like a hoover-size kind of steam cleaner and then a fogger. So, you know, before, when you go into the offices, you can't just fog anything because if you just put a fog in there or a mist in there and there's still virus or bacteria on surfaces or on the fabric, it will just neutralize. So first of all, they can, you know, steam clean the chairs, etc., and then fog them afterwards. So, yeah, we've been doing an awful lot to make sure that people can get back to work. They can get back to work safely um, and making sure we've got the programs the systems and the people now going back to our customers to do that. And we found certainly over the last two weeks that there's a lot more of our customers are asking for our assistance where previous six weeks before that, you know, no one was allowed on site. Now we've, uh, you know, we are starting, starting quickly to get back to supporting our customers, working with them to make sure that um, their systems are as tight as they can be. And we've also offered some additional products like a fresh check, which is an instant spray on to find out whether there's bacteria on the surface for identifying the risk. Yeah, I guess companies are starting to see that there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Obviously, it'll be staggered and it'll be different in different places and different sectors. But I think that's the, the next step is people are going to have to start getting these in place before they open again. Absolutely, they will have to get them in place. But yeah, we're supporting them as much as we can uh, when they come back. And also long term or short term, we did see a real initial panic buying by, by the dairy industry of chemicals because obviously one of the first issues that they had when they did their risk assessment was how do we clean the factory? What happens if pristanes go down, they have COVID-19 in their factory, they can't make chemicals? And, you know, we even had customers asking for us to fill road tankers that are used for milk with caustic and acid and then just having them sitting in their yard in case they couldn't get chemicals. But we just refused to do it because it would have created a, a panic. And if we had a panic, we couldn't supply all of our customers. So we refused to do it. And, you know, all the time we've been manufacturing, we've never let anyone down. Um, the biggest area where we've got a problem at the moment in the industry is regarding the disinfectant wipes that we all use so much for probe wipes and for cleaning through contact surfaces because all of the material that goes into making the wipe has been diverted to NHS for making scrubs. So there's no wipes available um, in the UK at the moment, or very, very few. And uh, until all of that material comes back into disinfectant wipes, it's all going to the NHS. Are there going to be any other potential issues with supplies as we all no. start getting back to work? None whatsoever. We see no issue whatsoever um, with any of the supplies. All supplies have, have got back to normal. 
we have got certain products on allocation and other customers have got products on allocation but we were very very careful in making sure that we allocated um, the same amount that people have been buying previously over the last six months so we didn't have boom and bust so if we've supplied everything in, in week one they wouldn't have had anything in week two three or four so no all stocks we have no problems with raw materials manufacturing all looking good going forward Will prices go up on these this kind of products though because of the yep, increase? Well, we, we have caustic is the highest it's been for five years at the moment. The dairy industry uses, it's their main primary cleaner for CIP, for cleaning pipes, vessels, um, dairies. And caustic at the moment, is, as I said, it's the highest it's been for several years. And that really is because um, when you produce caustic, it has a byproduct of that, which is chlorine. And chlorine is used in PVC. And in the last eight weeks, there's been no cars manufactured and there's been no construction industry. So all of the plastic material that contains PVC has not been bought. There's none been sold. So they've uh, reduced volumes out of all of the caustic and chlorine plants because they, um, they can't get rid of the chlorine for the PVC. So at the moment, it's high. We've taken a commercial decision not to move that on to any of our customers at the moment and just hopefully wait for another three months and find out whether those markets improve so that caustic once again reduces to, to where it was before. But that's the only problem that we can see of any price increase at the moment. We now head over to India to talk to Diraj Talreja, President of AAK Kamani, and Varun Deshpande, Managing Director at the Good Food Institute, India. AAK Kamani is AAK's majority-owned Indian joint venture, and it's partnered with the Good Food Institute India to collaborate on research and business promotion aimed at advancing India's market for plant-based foods. We first hear from Diraj. AAK started their journey in India in 2015. Uh, with a joint venture with Kamani Oils, and we bought 51% shares in Kamani Oil. And that's where the, the AK Kamani came into existence with that. And thereafter, you know, there has been a, a journey actually in itself with that, and we operate in various segments actually, primarily active in the space of specialty oil and fat, and so to various industry segments, uh, right from chocolate and confectionery to dairy, to bakery, to special nutrition, plant-based food, personal care, pharmaceutical, nutraceutical. So that's a, that's a quick brief about about the company. So where we are in currently, we are uh, we bought uh, there after the journey. We bought additional shares. Uh, so we are currently at 69% is owned by AAK, and uh, the balance uh, shareholding is by the Kamani family. And Varun, if you could give me some details on the Good Food Institute India. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much, Jim, for having us on. So the Good Food Institute India is part of a network of nonprofits internationally called the Good Food Institute. Uh, we have offices in the US, which is where we were started in 2016. Um, and then Brazil, India, Israel, Europe out of London and Brussels, East Asia out of mainland China, Hong Kong, Singapore, just growing quite rapidly. And our focus is very simple. We accelerate the alternative protein sector, uh, which is, of course, plant-based, cultivated, fermentation-based sources of meat, egg and dairy. Um, and it's a very exciting landscape, of course. So you're seeing a lot of participation from uh, legacy players within dairy uh, and meat and egg, um, and a lot of exciting innovation that's happening on the on the scientific and entrepreneurial side as well. So we work across that chain to help build up the sector through science, policy, uh, market side initiatives, a lot of stuff. 
How did the collaboration come about between the company and the organization? I could give you a little bit brief from my side and then we'll request uh, Warren to add uh, his perspective on that. Uh, so, you know, we started our journey in India with the plant-based food uh, with the launch of EcoPlanet. And uh, the discussion for collaboration started with Varun uh, around development of plant-based ecosystem in India. And uh, we started with uh, with a quick introduction over the webinar, over the virtual meeting, just like what we are doing now. And then followed by a visit of Varun and his team to our customer innovation center. That's a customer innovation center where we develop customized solutions for our customers. And Varun had, and his team had an opportunity to taste uh, vegan ice cream uh, during his visit to our lab. And wow. as in our business, it's said that tasting is believing, actually. And then we started exchanging ideas between AK Kamani and Good Food Institute with that. And then during the course of that, I presented that we are known as the co-development company, and which means that, you know, what we do in that co-development is that we normally start with ideation, and then we work on creation of the solution or the problem, and then we work on proving the concept actually and then work on implementation and launch of it and with this unique approach actually uh, we are able to support and our customers to create a market differentiation introduce a product functionality uh, address the health and nutrition aspect of the solution uh, if it relates to quality matters around the product profitability improvement actually or higher efficiencies in the process with that and during those discussions, this became the base of our collaboration with the vision of that, you know, we uh, would push for development of plant-based uh, ecosystem in India. And as uh, we supporting from the perspective of oil and fat in the plant-based food space primarily. Warren, would you like to add something from your perspective on that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dheeraj. That's exactly right. We spoke about, you know, AAK's global leading work in this sector, supplying fats to some of the leading plant-based meat, egg, and dairy companies globally, which is really interesting to us because in India, uh, the, the ecosystem is quite nascent, Jim. So there actually has not been as much market activity in the country. And our overall diagnosis of this situation is that entrepreneurs and, and companies, even large companies, are, are quite hamstrung by the fact that the ecosystem to support them really doesn't exist. So if I, as an entrepreneur in India, wanted to formulate an alternative dairy product, so let's say uh, an oat-based milk or something like that, looking at the ingredients available to me, that uh, the consumer perceptions, the needs for uh, things like a creamy mouthfeel, for example, because you need to you need to satisfy the consumer and meet them where they are, so that they can use the product in all the applications they want to. Really, none of those ingredients, none of that product development expertise, none of that advisory, uh, none of the the lab scale equipment. Uh, none of the pilot scale equipment, manufacturing scale uh, facilities, none of those things really exist. Um, and so that because that supporting infrastructure doesn't exist, entrepreneurs, as I said, are trying to start companies or formulate products with hands tied behind their back. Uh, and that manifests in the form of, you know, functionality and quality of their end product, but also manifests in the, in the form of cost because you have to then import all the expertise and import all the ingredients. So our goal at the Good Food Institute India has been to build more maturity in this into this ecosystem um, and to help entrepreneurs access expertise like the kind AAK and AAK Kamani can bring to the table. This is really what's going to help the ecosystem grow very rapidly. Once, once all of these things come together, uh, particularly folks like AAK bringing global expertise to the table, you will have an ecosystem that's more than the sum of its parts. And that's when you'll see takeoff. But that's going to take some time. And this is a great first step in that direction. Where is the plant-based sector currently at in India in terms of the number of products, how it's perceived by the population there? So we've, we've done some work, Jim, uh, doing um, consumer acceptance studies. 
Um, and we do find that the same convergence that, ex that exists internationally towards the idea of a protein diversification and towards plant-based alternatives also exists in India, at least among what you might consider an early adopter cohort, right? So like the urban, upwardly mobile, you know, relatively westernized folks with disposable income, they're eating like their global counterparts. They're eating like folks in Sydney, like those in, in New York, in London, et cetera, are. And particularly among the younger cohorts, as you've seen internationally as well, right? Because there is a certain sense of uh, stewardship of the planet that, that exists in those younger cohorts. So we've seen, for example, that plant-based meat, which might be analogous to plant-based dairy in this respect, um, has something like 63% acceptance in terms of repeated willingness to buy from consumers in India, relative to something like 30% in the US from studies we've done, uh, which is very encouraging. And I think uh, that same principle might apply to plant-based dairy here. As far as companies that have launched, as I was saying earlier, it's very early. So, I mean, you know, hold up the fingers of both hands and we probably could name all the companies that exist in India. But this, this partnership with AAK, we expect, and partnerships like it, will really give a springboard and a launch pad to the ecosystem. So we might see orders of magnitude growth over the next couple of years, just as happened elsewhere in the world. Is that based on partially sustainability or is are there other considerations in India for the plant-based? Definitely the similar considerations as elsewhere. So, I mean, uh, not just sustainability, but also uh, perceptions of health when it comes to plant-based, perceptions of, in some cases, quality and um, the issues in India that, that dairy might face in terms of aspersions cast on uh, things like mixing, uh, which is really interesting. So adulteration of milk uh, is an aspersion that's been cast through studies conducted by the Food Safety and Standards Authority of India. And I think th that's why consumers are looking at a protein diversification uh, in countries like India. Dheeraj, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I think uh, as you rightly touched upon, uh, the health awareness is one aspect, Jim, which is driving that. Food habit changes, actually. India, uh, in the overall, uh, the people are more experimental. So, so they are going for that. And on an average, actually, the protein deficiency uh, is, is very high in India. On an average, 73% of the of India's population, urban population, rural population is deficient in protein with that. And this plant-based food or this alternative protein actually comes as a step in the right direction. So people are, are open with that. And it also fits in nicely with some of the beliefs uh, that people have uh, around a vegan or around uh, a vegetarian uh, option for protein, actually, per se, with that. The young generation is getting driven by uh, no cruelty to animal also. You see that movement also is is uh, pretty active in India with that people are realizing that, you know, uh, the economic sustainability and the environmental sustainability needs to go hand in hand. And that's where are the few drivers that we see is uh, going to drive the future growth or the momentum in the plant-based food space. Yeah, I should have added, I think, uh, Dheeraj, you made an excellent point there, Jim. So the, the India is extremely complex, right? So from north to south, Pretty much everything you say about this country, the opposite of it is also true. You can find a cohort for which the opposite is also true. Um, but there is certainly um, a lot of controversy about animal source foods. Dairy is an exception because it's been such an economic engine for us. And, and generally, there's been a huge consensus about the, the fact that the dairy industry in India has been great for the country through the cooperative model and a lot of those things. Uh, but generally, when it comes to the consumption of animal sourced foods, you do have this issue of guilty non-vegetarians in India. So what's happening globally with this, the cohort that we've been describing through this answer, right, is, is called flexitarian. Flexitarianism being the practice of just trying to reduce your consumption of animal sourced foods because of the environment, health benefits, et cetera, et cetera. In India, by default, I would argue that 
pretty much all of our 71% of the Indian population that identifies as non-vegetarian, including eggs, pretty much all of them might describe themselves as guilty non-veg. And so you have this middle path of foods which replicate animal sourced foods, but do not come with that baggage um, of guilt, which is Absolutely. really interesting. Absolutely. And I think uh, to add uh, what Varun said, you know, as you move from north to south, actually, so on an average, the Indians have certain days, actually, where where you would like to be strictly vegan or vegetarian with that. But you don't want to compromise on your protein supplement, actually, per se, with that. And there were limited option with this one. Plant-based food fits nicely into into that, this one, so that you get away from, from your guilt, actually. At the same time, you are, you are having a diet which is full of all nutrients, per se, with that, yeah. What about price? Is that a major issue? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sector will not work and will not take off in India unless it's competitive on the basis of price. So the the theory of change has to be, I mean, the theory of change, Jim, has to be everywhere. Tastes the same or better and costs the same or less. Otherwise, you're not offering an alternative to people. You're just offering an inferior substitute. You can position as a company however you want, but your cost basis has to be competitive. That's, That's what we believe at the Good Food Institute globally. In India, especially, we have such a price sensitive market and one which will probably not sacrifice the other aspects, right? So like you, you're not going to want to sacrifice taste. You're not going to want to sacrifice functionality, which, by the way, is a huge piece of this for India. So dairy is used, especially milk is used in so many ways in India. It's used in traditional sweets. So sweet meats, it's used in it's used to make Indian yogurt, which is curd. It's used to make all kinds of drinks and, and beverages. It's used to make, of course, tea and coffee. So Everything you're doing, the product has to function as well as milk in all of these things, but you still have to keep the cost low, which is yep. a huge consideration. I mean, unless we had people like AAK come in and say, look, we can do this for you at industrial scale and, and add that functionality to your product, it would not be possible to do. So what are the benefits for both the company and the Good Food Institute for the cooperation between the two? So we want to build the sector, Jim. We want to pull in entrepreneurs, even pre-existing legacy dairy and meat companies, as we've been doing in other parts of the world, um, to really see the benefits of this um, and to formulate products that get them access to consumers that were maybe falling out of consumption for them, that were saying, oh, we no longer want to consume cow's milk or we no longer want to consume meat. And we want we want to really build that ecosystem. So the, the benefits for us are absolutely clear. We're, we're an entirely powered by philanthropy nonprofit. We're laser focused on building this ecosystem. So for us, this was a no-brainer in terms of partnering with AAK, as I've been saying. It makes a ton of sense for us to, to bring in that, that expertise and that, that global network to support our ecosystem in India. You know, any new business or any new idea, actually, uh, one of the ways to, to scale it up fast is collaboration. And, and to make it sustainable, actually, you need to bring the innovation with that. So sustainability, innovation, and collaboration are the pillars where we need to work on, on any new ecosystem with that. And Good Food Institute actually working with Varun and, and discussing with that on the different uh, platforms, we realize that there are there are gaps actually. There are gaps in terms of uh, uh, machines or the technologies, what technologies need to be selected by the new entrepreneurs with that. What kind of ingredients need to be used actually, what proteins, what flavors, uh, how this needs to be marketed, what should be the labeling claims uh, around that, what should be the marketing stories around that. And that's where I think we are working closely with Good Food Institute for the development of the plant-based food ecosystem in India so that you know we, we see an opportunity in the space for us. And what we bring on the table is uh, is uh, Ecoplanet uh, Solutions, uh, which is primarily our platform for plant-based food actually. 
the academy that's uh, going to be taking place. Could you give me some details on the academy and what the uh, entrepreneurs that are utilizing that, sure. what they will learn? We, we do academies in all of our industry segment with that. And these are primarily focused on basic knowledge of oils and fat and the role of oil and fat in in uh, delivering uh, the tasty plant-based food uh, product. At the same time, you know, after the theory session on on, on uh, the role of oil and fat in plant-based food, what we do is that we do uh, uh, the work uh, uh, with your own hand, actually, in, in, in our customer innovation center with the development of prototypes and how the different oils and fat make, make an impact on your on your different products and how you can move to the next iteration level with that. This is going to be supported by experts from Good Food Institute also from various aspects per se. As, as uh, Varun mentioned that, you know, if somebody or a new entrepreneur wants to enter into the plant-based food space, so he struggles with that, you know, how can I connect with all the different players in the value chain? I um, mean, where, where can I get the machines or where can I get the product development to be done? Where, uh, which are the companies for protein? Uh, what are the flavors? Uh, or about the financial level, um, are the investors or private equity firms who are keen on that? Additionally, just to give you a perspective, and I'm sure that's a phenomena in, in various parts of the world on plant-based food. We see that, you know, non-food guys are entering into this space of plant-based food. So the, so the people who have no experience in the food industry, they are looking into that and they are they are trying to formulate a food with a more scientific approach about it. When these people enter with that, they really don't come with, with a with a with a much of a domain a knowledge around uh, food processing or how this needs to be done. And that's where I feel that this academy fits in nicely to, to provide them uh, the information on, on, the, on the same platform about everything. Jim, I just want to say, uh, if I can just digress for a little bit, I think entrepreneurs in places like India are absolutely starved of this kind of, this kind of advisory and this kind of knowledge. If you look at the, the kinds of frugal innovation that do come out of places like India, and for India, you can also see places like Indonesia, Vietnam, even sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, anywhere within the low and middle income countries. It's oftentimes uh, a function of the supporting infrastructure or lack thereof that prevents entrepreneurs from breaking out and building really fantastic world-class massive companies that can advance entire industries. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is it's not Indians, it's India. Like that's that's the issue, right? So like, we, we really need to build up India as a supporting ecosystem these initiatives are exactly the kind of thing we need in the market. Because I can tell you that when, when entrepreneurs come to us and want to work with us and they say, you know, we'd like to understand how to utilize an ingredient, we're, we're plugged into all the, the companies everywhere in the world. But the speed at which Dheeraj can operate and pull in his teams uh, from everywhere, from Ireland, from Sweden, from, from Denmark and other places, uh, to just talk about the performance of an ingredient, uh, what they should be doing with a specific entrepreneur, and then building out entire product portfolios that respond uh, in an agile way to market penetration and what's going on in the market. All of those things are things that are game changers. And so these kinds of initiatives, whether it's the academies or the innovation lab in Mumbai and, and things like that, these are huge deals. Uh, we're, talk we're really talking about an immature ecosystem to underline that. And that's going to be transformative here. What kind of challenges and opportunities are you seeing in the plant-based sector in India? Jim, everything we're saying is COVID notwithstanding, right? So COVID's thrown a big spanner in the works when it comes to entrepreneurs' go-to market in the country, uh, and which at the best of times is, is impeded, as I said, by the lack of uh, supporting infrastructure. So in a country like India, I mean, if you're, if you're looking to launch products that are, let's say, delivered to home, which a lot of you know conventional dairy companies have done over the last couple of years is create really well-packaged, branded milk that gets delivered at home and that has uh, a quality assurance and things like that. 
Uh, and those things are, of course, expensive relative to regular uh, milk that gets delivered in plastic packets and things like that. But if you're if you're trying to do something like that, you really become a logistics company and a dairy company in a place like India because service providers are very very difficult to come by uh, that are trustworthy that that you can uh, really control the quality with etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So all of those things are issues at the best of times. Right now during COVID, we were expecting the plant-based sector across meat, egg, and dairy to experience multiple product launches over the next year or so, but then a lot of that would have needed to come in food service. So in restaurants, let's say with progressive chefs that cater to those early adopter cohorts, for example, uh, in order to introduce new segments to these new products. But that's going to be impeded severely because the food service sector is going to be completely decimated. It, it, it is being decimated as we speak by COVID-19 because you can't just freeze the economy uh, you know, for a couple of quarters and then not expect there to be negative consequences, of course. So I think that uh, the challenges are, are many and um, there are going to be further challenges leading out into the future. But you know, there, are, there are interesting models that emerge from there and, and ingenuity that emerges from those challenges that I think might be really, really, really uh, exciting for the future. I think Jim has uh, Warren mentioned that, you know, the challenges around the business model or the food service segment, which is decimated with that. Absolutely. That's uh, that's right with that. The few other challenges overall, if you see uh, for the entrepreneurs entering into this space, uh, decide how to uh, market the products and what uh, claims need to be put up on that, uh, ranging from selection of the right ingredients, actually cost economics, as we talked about, it's very important uh, for India with that infrastructure because you know over there some of the technologies or some of the machines uh, comes from some of the european countries or from western countries with that how we need to need to address that with this covid-19 situation that's going to delay some some of the some of the launches or implementation on or scaling up uh, challenges with this one and the financial support actually uh, in this uh, in this overall uh, the new uh, business model with that but you know, having said that, the challenges with this one—if you really go into into the space of various online platforms, uh, if you go go to uh, look at the data analytics in the terms of search, actually with this one, you find that you know there are a lot of products which are already available on the shelf, actually, whether those are made in India or whether those are those are coming from from the uh, manufactured in some other countries per se. With that, so there is a high uh, engagement by the consumers towards plant-based food space, which talks about that there are opportunities which is going to come up in the space of plant-based meat plant-based dairy you see that you know uh, if you if you just go around uh, uh, the news articles some of the players in this space have been able to get private equity investment into their into their startups actually and which uh, demonstrate that yes definitely there is a there is a strong future uh, coming up in the space of plant-based uh, meat and plant-based uh, dairy per se with that yeah and if we're striking a, a hopeful note i'd like to speak a little bit about the the models that i think make sense in in the face of these challenges right so uh, you i think you'll see in India, the, the growth of new models that perhaps have uh, taken some time to be embedded. So, um, so you might suddenly have people transacting a lot online uh, and digitally through digital payments, whereas people were transacting much more in cash prior. Um, and you might see a slight downward swing once again towards cash later, but you'll definitely see a new normal, which is higher than the old normal. Um, so you, you might see a lot of stuff that's happening with online delivery platforms. So instead of seeing uh, chefs that are, that are prominent launch plant-based products in their restaurants that are physical restaurants, you could see them launching it on online platforms. And you've seen kind of this stuff happen ex elsewhere with, let's say, the Impossible Burger, which is a plant-based beef product being launched 
or having prominence on DoorDash in the US, which is a delivery platform. So you might have the same thing happening uh, on Swiggy or Zomato, which are the del delivery platforms in India. You could also see things like meal kits, which have um, done really well, or at least had a long history in places like the US, but not really taken off yet in India, take off now because many people have now become amateur home chefs during this time. What's the time scale for all of this in terms of bringing products to market and how many do you expect to be able to bring to market? Because again, India is such a massive market. Is the focus and the emphasis on regional or national? What, how, how do you see this developing? I think very interesting question, Jim. You know, uh, yes, fully agree with you that, you know, the food, uh, like if you talk about some of the Western players in, in the plant-based food space, I think the focus is more on uh, plant-based uh, burger, as an example, or, or beef burger, chicken burger, or whatever format with that. While you come to India, every 100 kilometer or 200 kilometer, you have the different uh, food palette and different taste and, and different format of the food with this one. So it is no more restricted to burger, which means that opportunities are immense or the potential is immense with that. You know, we will start seeing uh, some of the products hitting the shelf in the next couple of quarters with that. But I think it's, it's going to be a, a slightly longer journey than uh, than in uh, other parts, actually. So maybe three year or four year down the line that we could see that, you know, the market will will really reach to that stage with that. I see that, you know, in and around Maharashtra and maybe maybe in the southern part, actually, we see southern part of India. That's where we see the more activity happening in Delhi side. Also, we see that it's happening. So I will say that, you know, there are there are centers, actually. So Delhi uh, in and around Mumbai and in and around Bangalore, I, I feel that that's where the the main um, fulcrum or main activities are happening at this point of the time. I think that's exactly right. I think um, to answer your question, Jim, about timelines, I think we will see launches in the next couple of quarters. And then as we can all kind of intuit, the, the success or reception towards those early launches will dictate how the sector moves forward in terms of momentum. So I think that, you know, when, when you look at other ecosystems, like let's say the US or Brazil, uh, before 2015 or before 2014, if you told someone, if you told me even that, hey, you have this plant-based burger that bleeds, it would take a couple of minutes for me to adjust to that reality and think through why someone may want to eat a plant-based burger that bleeds, right? Um, and just understanding, you know, what the value proposition of something like that is. So I think once those companies have proven out their value and, and consumers have reacted to them and you're seeing how the market responds, it can really shift momentum upwards or downwards by orders of magnitude. So I would say it's kind of a wait and see, even though we'll see several launches over the next quarters. Um, we remain confident that with the with the kind of convergence we're seeing on plant-based foods, there might be a really great reception in the market and that might drive things forward significantly over the next one, three, five years, because that's really the time horizon that you need to see a thriving market. Uh, as far as another value of India that India brings to the table in terms of regions, it's not just internal, but also looking outward onto the world, right, Jim? So the opportunity here is to look at uh, building great uh, ingredients companies as well as end products that could be shipped around the world and consumed in those markets as well. Absolutely. A really fascinating article we had on Dairy Reporter a couple of weeks ago was about the discovery of a new potential essential saturated fatty acid in butter. Not easy to say. It's called pentadecanoic acid, but to make it a bit easier, it's also referred to as C15, and it has health benefits. Of course, I could have asked questions about this for hours, but didn't, and kind enough to answer the questions that I did ask was Dr. Stephanie Venn Watson, CEO and co-founder of Serafina Therapeutics, the company in the US that made the discovery. 
Sure. So Serafina Therapeutics is we're a health and wellness company, and we're really dedicated, Jim, to improving global health. And the way we're doing that is by discovering new essential fatty acids and micronutrients. Um, Serafina came about because um, our four co-founders were really driven to change the way we think about nutrition and the way we, um, you know, these long-held ways of approaching nutrition. Um, what Serafina does is we are using these advanced technologies and rigorous science, uh, a field called metabolomics, um, in which we're studying thousands of small molecules in our blood and understanding which of those small molecules, many of which we're getting from our diet, are um, important, have beneficial properties, and even more so are essential to us maintaining our health. How easy is it to to work on identifying and um, isolating things like that? Sure. I mean, it, it used to be really difficult, uh, one, to access these types of technologies and two, to analyze massive amounts of data. But now, thanks to the ability for advanced technologies like metabolomics, they're readily available um, they're repeatable, and then the ability to analyze these data using um, what you know we call big data analytics. This has really opened up the world to really a new golden age for nutrition. So, because of these, we're now able to go through and pick out which of the small molecules have associations with people, for example, with lower glucose or lower um, cholesterol, lower inflammation. And then once we identify those top contenders uh, in the blood, we then take pure synthetic forms of them and then test them in the lab. So things like testing it against human cell lines, mimicking inflammation or mimicking some of these disease states and then seeing if it has an effect. And so C15, our first molecule, is, um, was discovered that way and made it through the lab and is now, um, we're excited, at, ready to be on the market soon. Is it like a commercial laboratory or is it associated with any, um, like a university or? We have, we're in an incubator lab uh, called BioLabs here in San Diego that supports startups uh, with their science. And so we've been very grateful. Uh, in fact, our um, uh, Serafina and our parent company called EpiTracker uh, won uh, Beringer Ingleham's Innovation Award for the work that we're doing. So it's really been through the support of that lab that we've been able to do a lot of our work. Right. And how long has it been in terms of starting on this search and finding C15? Uh, so it's been, we've been working with this molecule for three and a half years. Uh, so in which all of eight studies uh, were published this week in Nature Scientific Reports. Uh, so it's been wonderful seeing that the outcomes that we've seen with C15. Now that we have this process down of how we can make these discoveries and have a, you know, a very successful proof of concept with C15, right behind that, we have another 100 molecules um, we've discovered using this process and are um, uh, excited about uh, several top contenders that are coming out of that as well. Can you sort of take me through the, the first steps right the way through to the actual discovery of something and then how it proves to be beneficial? Sure. Yeah. So with well, let's take C15 as an example. Um, so with C15, we found 
that um, higher levels of C15 in the blood were associated with a lower risk of what's called metabolic syndrome or prediabetes. And uh, that includes um, having high glucose, high cholesterol, and a chronic inflammatory state. And so at that point, it's just association, but uh, it gives us a hint as to a molecule that if it has higher levels in our blood may be beneficial. Interestingly, um, while we were doing this work uh, in the early days, other studies started coming out throughout the world, multiple labs. There are now over 20 publications from others showing the same thing, that people who have higher levels of C15 uh, in their blood have a lower risk of having or developing not only metabolic syndrome, but type 2 diabetes, stroke, cardiovascular disease, um, even a, a disease called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease now impacting one in four people globally. So while we were working on this in the lab, we were seeing this story emerge out in the greater scientific community. What we did from there is we then took pure um, C15, and then we took human cell systems, 12 of them, and it's basically a disease in a dish. And so we took these human cell systems that were mimicking inflammatory and fibrotic diseases and we expose them to uh, different concentrations of C15. And lo and behold, we showed that C15 isn't just associated with benefits, um, but it actually um, had activity in decreasing inflammation and decreasing fibrosis in these human cell lines. From there, once we saw the activity and understood how much we needed um, to achieve these beneficial effects, we then moved to uh, in vivo models, so obese mice and other models mimicking the, this liver disease. And when these models were supplemented orally uh, once a day with C15 for 12 weeks, we saw that the obese mice had lower glucose, cholesterol, and inflammation. And the liver model had less fibrosis in the liver as well as um, attenuated or um, helped anemia disease in those models. You said that this was when you discovered C15, that was from human blood or was that, how was that first discovered? Sure. So um, this is a whole interesting story on its own, Jim. <laughs> so I don't want to okay. take you down too far thing, but it, um, we initially discovered it in dolphins. And so um, uh, we work cooperatively with the U.S. Navy, and they have a marine mammal program. And uh, my job for 20 years as a veterinarian was to help uh, continually improve the health and welfare of the Navy's dolphins. Ends up that as Navy's dolphins get older, uh, which they're doing, they develop some of these same chronic conditions that people do. And so it was really through the work with the dolphins that we discovered um, the C15 and them, and that translated uh, beautifully to a spin-off benefit to people. And it's also found in other products like butter? It is. So it's the, the highest concentration of C15 for us, uh, for people, is through uh, high-fat, whole-fat dairy products, um, the highest C15 levels being in butter, um, followed by things like um, cheese and cream. It can also be found in some types of fish and plants, but our primary source is from whole fat dairy. And in fact, C15 for decades has been used as a biomarker for how much dairy a person needs of how much C15 we have in our blood. 
which seems to be kind of against what people are being told about dairy fats and, and dairy foods, if it's beneficial. How does that part of it work? Indeed. So, you know, it's really been a, a 40 year experiment. Um, right. And so, you know, if we look back in 1977, when there was a grave concern over the high number of men who were dying of heart attacks and Congress put together recommendations to say, gosh, we need to lower cholesterol so we can decrease the risk of heart disease. And one of the top recommendations from that document was to decrease uh, our intake of saturated fats from the diet. And one of the top sources or one of the highest foods with the highest amount of saturated fat is dairy, whole fat dairy. And so, you know, over the next 20 years, it was an incredibly effective campaign, all with good intent. And people's intake of whole fat dairy, of whole fat milk went down fourfold. So it was effective. What we've seen since that time um, is not an improvement in cardiometabolic diseases, but instead a rise in obesity and um, uh, type 2 diabetes, you know, a disturbing trend of increasing cardiovascular disease in children, and in the emergence of this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So while all of this was happening, that's when these other studies, you know, over the recent years have come out showing higher C15 is associated with a lower risk of these very diseases we've seen increase. And now with our paper um, that came out this week, you know, all showing now kind of provides the final piece of the puzzle saying that it appears that not only is C15 a beneficial fat in whole fat dairy, it may in fact be essential for us to maintain our health. So it's, it's a 40 year experiment. We're not alone. Uh, there are now a rising uh, number of calls to action to look at the dietary recommendations um, and understand, really take a look at all the science that's been emerging over the last you know, five years. Although it wouldn't necessarily suggest that because C15 is in butter that everybody should go out and start eating four pounds of butter a week. That's that's correct. So that, yeah, that's not uh, not what we'll be selling. <laughs> it's, it's more of understanding fat. You know, let's sit around the table, let's um, gather around the table and let's talk about fat. When you look at saturated fats, we're not saying all saturated fats are actually good for you. Um, there are saturated fats are really broken into two categories called even chain and odd chain saturated fatty acids. Um, C15, odd number 15, is an odd chain fat and it's present in very low levels and trace levels in butter compared to even chain saturated fatty acids that have numbers like 18 and 16. And these even chain saturated fatty acids are present at much higher levels in the foods. And these fatty acids, at least C16, um, continue to be associated with um, the negative health effects that we keep hearing about with regard to heart disease and um, type 2 diabetes. So I think it's really a need to look at dietary recommendations and start discriminating between different types of saturated fats, much like we've done with you know, parsing out omega-3 fatty acids, for example, over trans fats. And one of the trends, I guess, in maybe the last 10, 15, 20 years has been for people to avoid products and then supplement their diets with, you just mentioned omega-3. I mean, a lot of people don't necessarily get some of 
what they need from their food. So they take a whole load of supplements. Is this where we're kind of heading with C15? We are. I mean, you know, we continue to live in an overarching fat-free world. And with our findings, Serafina is really driven to say this is rigorous science-backed product and how can we get it to the people? And so uh, the best way for us to do that is to provide C15 via daily oral supplements, which is where we're starting. These will be available in the fall is our plan. Um, And then also scaling up C15 to be available as a food ingredient. So it can be used as a food fortifier, um, much like what you were saying, um, Jim, with regard to omega-3s. So the similar way you see omega-3s is how we're looking to help get C15 out and be able to, to have its benefits. Will it be synthetically produced? It will, um, primarily because it's present at such low levels in foods that it's not really practical from that standpoint. We also are focused on purity. Uh, We really want to provide a product that provides only the good fat at the amount that the science dictates without anything else. So really one ingredient where we're delivering just the good fat um, in its purest form you've figured out that this is something that's essential. How do you then ensure that the body gets the right dose of it when we're taking this and that it doesn't end up getting excreted or not becoming used by the body? So our, the science that we've you know focused on over the last three and a half years have really gone down the list of critical questions of if we put this out as a product, um, one, is it needed? And two, the way we're delivering it, is it going to be effective? So um, among those studies includes the understanding now as us as well as other researchers have been able to show um, how much we need to ingest, uh, which interestingly matches what we used to get through um, when we had high fat diets, um, which is about 100 to 300 milligrams per day. At that dose, the studies have demonstrated that we can achieve a specific concentration in the blood, which is 10 to 30 micromolars. And it's at that concentration that our studies have repeatedly shown these benefits. So it's really nice to see how it all lines up with regard to how much the supplement will provide or the food fortifiers. It matches what we used to get when we lived in a a higher fat, dairy fat world. Um, And then that then coincided with the benefits um, that we saw uh, in the lab. And you said that this is going to be something that will be available commercially as a a supplement in the fall? That's correct. And whereabouts, just in the U.S. initially? Well, we're going to start as um, a a direct-to-consumer supplement, so we'll be selling it online. We are focusing on the U.S. at first, but rapidly growing from there. Um, And then we're finishing up some of our final studies with regard to um, U.S. approval for its use as a food ingredient, right, where you aren't actually specifically able to say take exactly this amount per day. Um, So for the food ingredient side, we expect that to be ready in early 2021. And that's something that could be used in, in what kind of products like yogurt and stuff like that? That's correct. Basically, um, yeah, anything you you see fortified with vitamin D or your know, other vitamins, this it, it essentially because it's a, an essential fatty acid, 
um, it would behave and be used in foods the same way we see vitamins and other um, essential fatty acids, the omega-3. Hopefully. Well, I was going to say that I'll be able to go and buy some, but shipping to uh, the UK from the US is pretty <laughs> expensive these days. So hopefully it'll be something that you can supply. Are you planning on licensing it to places around the world so that we can buy it in Europe? Yeah, I, that is part of our model, right? I, so the last two, there are only two other known essential fatty acids um, today. And they were both discovered in 1930. A, and a vitamin really hasn't been discovered since 1945. So Serafina is in this incredibly fortunate position to have a discovery that has so many impacts, positive impacts on the world. So our goal, you know, our mission truly is to improve global health. And so as part of that, it's saying, what's the best and smartest way that we can get C15, you know, out to the people. And so it includes not just us um, creating some of our own product and having food ingredient available, um, but also licensing out to strategic partners and working with others to see how can we access from um, from mom and dads uh, at home taking care of their kids and parents all the way to, um, you know, looking at developing countries and seeing how we can support health at the maternal and early childhood years. And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from INCL FC Stone. Hi, Jim. Um, well, it feels like a much more stable dairy market this week compared to the last uh, several weeks. Um, well, the last month and a half has, has really seen very strong growth uh, in the dairy markets globally, probably starting initially with uh, some of the U.S. buying programs initiated by the, by the USDA uh, to try and stimulate demand, but really it's had a knock-on effect to all of the world market prices. That's kind of saw, for example, price increases over the last six weeks in, in butter of, of up around you know 19%. So it's so a really very strong increases from, from the original falls. Um, we've seen, again, spot prices this week continue to increase, although at a slower pace. And also these are lagging indicators. So, so the quotations this week are really um, the result of the butter price last at the butter market last week. But for example, butter was up this week 1.3% and, and skim was up 2.7%. Uh, Continues to, to look strong from that perspective. But when you look at the, the futures markets, it's really been quite stable over the last week. Um, we've got to a point in the market where there, there's good fundamental arguments um, being debated on both sides. I mean, buyers are pointing to the fact that uh, we still overall have a, a net um, reduction in dairy demand as a result of the COVID-19 restrictions, even though they are being re, um, reduced now uh, across most of the uh, the world, there is still a, a knock-on effect of, of lower demand. And obviously the, the macroeconomic factors as well uh, is also playing into that. But on the supply side, uh, we've a bit of mixed data so far. It's, it hasn't been looking too bad in terms of the official statistics. 
But you do have a concern now that the, the warm and dry weather we've seen across Europe over the last um, weeks has is starting to have an impact in, in terms of grass growth. So there is some concerns there on what that supply side may look like. Um, so, so lots to be continuing monitoring over the, over the coming weeks and months. But so far in the last uh, week, it has been more stable than certainly in the previous months. Thanks, Charlie. We'll catch up with you again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another week. Hopefully you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Next week, we already have one interview done, and that's with Tate and Lyle on their new sustainability goals. And there are two more set for tomorrow, and plenty more in the pipeline. There's more sports starting up again this week. Garden centres are now open locally. Many people have been given an inch by slight easing of the restrictions, but are taking a mile instead, so we'll see how that works out. Hopefully things are also improving where you are, or maybe you're in a country that managed the lockdown really efficiently right from the outset. Regardless, I hope you have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.